The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, September 18th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night, there were dueling speaking engagements for the president and the man who would be president. It was a chance for voters to evaluate, to assess if one really was experiencing cognitive decline that affected his speech, and if so, to consider which direction those charges should flow. I'll skip to the last words of Trump's event in Mousany, Wisconsin. Here, he clearly does not know where he is. From Milwaukee to Madison, from Oshkosh to La Crosse, from Green Bay, how are the Packers doing so far? Good team, good people. To right here and give me the proper pronunciation. Uh, that's right. Thank you. That's what I said. Nice recovery there, Mr. President. You could really tell throughout the speech that the president was connecting to his audience of middle Americans because he spoke about their experiences, their concerns, the issues that were important to them. They have everything on Air Force One. That's a great thing. Got more televisions than any plane in history. They've got televisions in closets, on floors, on ceilings. Vying for the endorsement of the airborne ceiling-mounted television manufacturers of America. So good luck with that. Trump then proceeded to lie, and not in novel ways, in the same way that he lies all the time. You know that last time, four years ago, oh, he's not going to do well with women. I did great with women. They said, what well, a big thing. Remember that? Election Eve. He won't do well. This will be a very short. Not doing well with women. I did great. They said at the end of the night, after they announced I won, they said, what happened? Well, he did very well with women. I don't know how it happened there. They said he did very well with African-American community. He did very well with Hispanics. They said he did very well with everything. We kicked their ass. That was Okay, here are the facts, not the exit polls, which showed a great gap, but the survey of validated voters that Edison Research and Pew looked at. 41% of women voted for Trump. 54% of women voted for Hillary Clinton. It was, in fact, the biggest gender gap recorded in the four decades that it has been tracked in U.S. presidential elections. Perhaps you also heard that reference about doing great with blacks, also demonstrably untrue. He got the lowest percentage of any Republican who wasn't actually running against a black person since Barry Goldwater in 1964. Goldwater, by the way, opposed the Civil Rights Act and LBJ signed it. Now, I used to get upset at the runaway lies in every Trump speech and our inability to reel him in. I'm beginning to conclude something else, however. I say, let him have his echo chamber of drooling enablers cheering him on with great success amongst women. Let him continue to think, as I believe he honestly does, that he's doing a bang-up job with the ladies. This will prompt him to spend time and attention championing ideas like the idea he has of saving the suburbs for Susie Homemaker that seems actually to be going extremely terribly, having zero impact so far as anyone can tell. Meaning his lies do endanger us, but there's also a lot of evidence that they endanger him. On the show today, 
As the president spoke in Wisconsin, Joe Biden was in Scranton, outdoors, fielding questions from audience members, some of whom he'd met before. After all, you know, Scranton. I will spiel about one thing he said, a call for condemnation, a warranted call, but also a ubiquitous one. But first, in politics, as in sports, there can only be one winner. So what to do with everyone else? If you're Richard Nixon in 1960, you try again in 68. If you're the Chicago Cubs, you sit with that for about 100 years. If you're the LA Clippers, I don't know, double Jokic in the paint? There really seems to be no solution. But now, there is one refuge of the loser. It is the essay about losing. The new book, Losers, Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard, examines some quite interesting losers. Ivan wrote an essay in this book. It wasn't about my wrong answer in Final Jeopardy, or my lifelong jet fandom, or the 2016 election night show. I'll just leave it at that. Listen, as we'll discuss, we being me, editor Louisa Thomas, and editor Mary Pilon, with their book, Losers, Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard. Even the losers get lucky sometimes. I guess they're lucky enough to be in a new book called Losers, Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard. It was edited by Mary Pilon and Louisa Thomas, who each contribute chapters. You know who else does? Gay Talese and Arthur Conan Doyle and me. I'd put the other two, you know, above me in the firmament. Louisa, Mary, thanks for coming on. To each of you, thanks for coming on again. Of course, thanks. Exciting to be back. So your contributions, each of your contributions to this book are pieces that originally ran, Louisa, in your case, in The New Yorker a few years ago, and Mary, in your case, in what, The New York Times a few years before that? Yes. Yeah. And they were, um, I think they're a little bit different from a lot of the other chapters in the book, because even the concept of losing is not so much uh, on the scoreboard with each of them. So why don't you talk about your chapters and how you got to conceive of this book and why you thought those chapters would fit in? I guess, Mary, we, you could start with your tomato can. Sure. So the short version of the story is this is a totally wild, weird yarn that I wrote in 2013 at the Times about this mixed martial arts fighter named Charles Rowan, who tomato can's a boxing term. It's the guy you throw in the ring to get the crap beaten out of him. And that's what he was in this MMA world. And, you know, we think of UFC and MMA as this explosive growing sport, but there's also this, you know, much smaller town aspect of things where, you know, he was basically getting beat up and not paid for it. And his life was pretty off the rails beyond that. He had this drug deal that went bad. He, you know, held up a gun store. Um, and, and let me interrupt you. The name of the gun store was? Uh, guns and Stuff. <laughs> I can't believe I remember that. that. This was seven years ago. Um, guns and Stuff. It was called Guns and Stuff. He robbed it with a Batman mask. I should... I mean, there's so many bizarre details to the story. And, um, and you know, then at one point faked his own death to try and get out of it all. So, you know, the story was... It was like this Coen Brothers type mystery of like what causes someone to fake their own death and what what did that look like? What happened? He's kind of one of the rare humans to have, you know, overheard his own memorial service, which has like this Tom Sawyer quality that I couldn't resist. So, you know, obviously he was known as a loser in a sport, but there were also these other things related to loss that were really interesting to me, you know, that his loss of money, the loss of control over his own life, the relationship to death, and what does it mean to actually be alive? You know, he ends up in prison, you know, exploring that. So I think like, you know, losing in sports, yes, there's like the obvious, you know, what does it feel like to be an athlete if you lose? And that's, you know, every single athlete in the world, I think, has experienced that. But then there's 
also think about losing more broadly, um, which is kind of where I, as like a non-athlete, was kind of interested in what his relationship with that was more generally. So I think, you know, I've been an advocate for loser stories forever. So that's part of why this collection (laughs) was really gratifying. But that one kind of took it to another level. Yeah, here's a great sentence from that. If this was the afterlife, Rowan didn't much care for it. He also <laughs> had this temptation to like bust down from the upstairs during his memorial service to say, ah, I got you guys. <laughs> I'm alive. You're doing a book on losers. You're personally interested in losers, the concept of losing in sports. And this guy is, let us be harsh, not just in the ring, but in life, a loser. But beyond that, are there parallels or are there analogies to the idea that someone loses on a sporting field and is then a loser? Or is it more like your story shows what a real loser is, although there's a lot of humanity in it, and the whole idea of, you know, LeBron James being unable to win that championship is laughable if you call that guy a loser before he actually put a ring on? I think that losing's universal, right? And, you know, whether you, it's a small loss or, you know, the tomato can piece, I mean, who hasn't had a day where they felt like they were just getting the crap beat out of them, you know? Like, I'm not saying that we all kind of run amok and rob banks and do all this other crazy stuff, but... I think there's something kind of universal about that experience. And I think, you know, something Luisa and I've talked a lot about is that there's a taboo around it. And we write about this in the introduction, that there's something that makes particularly us as Americans really uncomfortable with losing. And I think, you know, with Charles Rowan's story, I love that it had this kind of small town heartland pulse to it because there's, you know, and I say this to somebody with a lot of family in the Midwest, there's kind of this like, you know, buck up, keep a smile on your face mentality. And that's just not everyone's personality, right? So I think there's something really universal about whether you're talking about LeBron's relationship with losing um, or, you know, Charles Rowan's, that there's various flavors of losing, that there's a lot of spectrums, that it's uh, there's a big spectrum there. It's not just as black or white as like a scoreboard would, you know, lead you to believe. Now, Luis, your penned chapter is about the tennis player, Nick Curios, who's a compelling figure, but, you know, he's successful. He's not as successful as one of the four or five greats of the sport. People say that he has a lot of talent within him and can be more successful. What positions him as a loser, do you think? Well, I think that Curios is regarded by many people within the sport as having the potential to be one of the great winners. You know, that he could be the one of the top two or three players in the game if he only did X, Y, and Z, if he only committed himself in a certain way, if he only hired the right coach, if he only worked harder, if he only did this, if he only did that. Instead, he has a kind of talent for losing um, matches that he shouldn't. I was really interested in his counter arguments in some ways, Mm -hmm. in which he sort of said, look, my goal here isn't to become the best winner in tennis. My goal here is to become a better person, a happier person, um, and sort of thinking about what that might look like. What would it look like to live a more, more winsome life, I guess? And a kind of argument over like what would... What would it mean for him to fulfill his potential? Would it mean becoming a more sort of one-dimensional person, becoming more successful as a tennis player? Or is there another path that he should be going down? And the kind of arguments that people have over that. So I think that when we talked about this essay collection, we wanted to define losers as broadly as possible because I think it is, as Mary said, a very universal experience. And we wanted there to be room in it for LeBron James and for you know, a guy who fakes his own murder. <laughs> um, we wanted to speak to the fact that this is a kind of something that we all experience in different ways. And 
also maybe to suggest that there are different ways of winning, too. But I do think there's a very, very fundamental difference between the idea of losing in team sports and the idea of losing in individual sports. Do you think so? Absolutely. I mean, I think the whole mentality of an individual sport is different. I just did a kind of very long piece about tennis. And one of the things a lot of people talk to me about is the idea that tennis is a sport that encourages athletes to be self-centered. I mean, that there's a kind of almost direct correlation between the self-centeredness of a person and how well they do. And Yeah, well, I think this is a big theme throughout the collection. We flat out state it in the introduction is like there's an isolation and a loneliness to losing. So when you lose in an individual sport, it's so on you and it's so and like the grieving process with that. And at least with a team, like, you know, it's not fun to lose on a team, but you have like some comrades, like you have some people to kind of share it with. And I think that that is, you know, a really important distinction. You know, one of the my favorite pieces in the collection is Jeremy Taiwo, who does this event called the Decathlon that I'm weirdly obsessed <laughs> with. And he's like the number two guy in the world chasing Ashton Eaton, who has the world record and won a gold medal. In it. And so he's like chasing this pursuit. And not only that, like he and Asher are like friends and Ashton Eaton's like a nice guy, which makes it that much worse, right? Like, what are the odds that these two guys in the Pacific Northwest would be peaking in this sport at the same time? So he goes from devoting his whole life to this really lonely, you know, individualistic pursuit to like driving an Uber right after. Considering how dominant team sports are in the United States, in American culture, it's notable that a number of our essays are about individual sports specifically for that reason. But I do also think it's worth, you know, thinking about the fact that on team sports, there's an added pressure that, you know, you people feel like they've let down their teammates. I mean, there is there is this mm-hmm. essay, you know, Too Lucky in Love about Ralph Branco who gave up this famous home run. And the weight of it is not just that he did this, but that he did this and they did this, you know. But, you know, he sort oh, yeah. of took down the whole team. He let down the whole borough since the since the Brooklyn Dodgers became one of these teams that's transcended just the 26 guys on the squad. I also think that depending on personality type, an individual sport might be better suited to the kind of person who is a little bit rigid, unbelievably dedicated, but also doesn't love the gray areas because in a team sport, you have to make a decision about how much to defer. I mean, LeBron James has to make, conscious or unconsciously, every trip down the floor, this is the conscious part, a decision to defer, but he has to conceive of himself within the team as how much am I going to take it on my shoulders? How much am I going to incorporate others? How much am I going to use my personality to try to inspire or berate others? And then if you're Michael Jordan, we hold you up as this hero because it worked. And then if you're LeBron James, maybe without that great supporting cast, we insult you because it didn't. You know, Tiger Woods never has to make those calculations. You're definitely mentally taxed when it's just you and the hole or just you in the sea or just you and that player across the net from you. But there's a different set of calculations in terms of team play. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think actually one of the things that comes through in that Brianna Hinlund's um, LeBron James piece is there are two things. One is that, you know, there's a kind of argument over how great a teammate LeBron James is or isn't. But Um, One of the points that Ryan makes is that um, teams actually in some ways have made themselves over in LeBron's image. (laughs) (laughs) He he sort of embodies the sort of like modern NBA concept. And one of the things that makes him such a genius is that he has this capacity for seeing his teammates and where they should be. And, you know, he's a great passer. He's a great, you know, he sort of does everything. 
All right. I'm going to throw out a couple sports cliches regarding losers, and you tell me to what extent you agree or disagree with them. Losing builds character, winning reveals it. You believe that? False. I just think it's too simplistic. I mean, I don't think that that's consistent, I guess, is the word that comes to mind. I think that just kind of glazes over the reality for people going through it. I don't know if that answers. What do you think, Lisa? It's easy to do anything in victory. It's in defeat that a man reveals himself. And I actually think that's truer, truer to the truth. I think that um, you are sort of left with yourself when you lose in a way, like you sort of have to face um, yourself, not some idealized version of yourself. You, and winners are, are sort of exalted and, and in some ways caricatured, you know, because they're sort of the, the fullest version, you know? I don't mm-hmm. think winning necessarily reveals character at all. I also think winning and losing have a lot to do with luck. And that's something I'm really kind of interested in. And I, in a couple of pieces get, we get into, it's, you know, how fine the differences between winning and losing, the whole narratives are built around them. And I think that that's part of the pathos of losing is it kind of does leave you, leaves you a little naked. It leaves you vulnerable. Yeah. Okay. Here's another cliche. You don't get better by winning. You get better by losing. I think you, you get know, better by doing your both. Game. Show me anyone who hasn't done both and gotten better by both. I think that's not just sports. I think that's life. And the sooner you embrace that, then I think the better off you're going to be. So yeah, I'd say I'm like 50-50 on that one. Every athlete knows that you have to, you're not going to be able to do something every time. Like even the best, you know, even the best miss shots, even the best, you know, in baseball, we all famously know that, you know, even the very, very, very best are not going to get on base most of the time. Like winning can really encourage you, you know? There is something to feeling like you're in the flow or riding the wave or that there's there's a kind of freedom and risk-taking that sometimes comes with winning, you know, that you can grow from that too. Okay, so here's another losing cliche, and Pat Riley said this about the NBA, but I think it's about at least North American team sports, and he said in the NBA, but let's expand it out. In sports, there is winning and there is misery. One of the things I love is like when somebody loses and something amazing happens as a consequence after, right? And then you also get into this whole thing with the NBA and draft and, you know, how people, I don't think it's that simple either. Sometimes losing is, can be miserable. You know, that actually bronze medalists are the happiest people. <laughs> yeah, bronze medalists. It's perfect. It's like you get on the podium, you know, you get your bonus money, you're in the photos, you get some hardware, but like you don't have to, you're not jealous or, you know, angry that you didn't get you know, first place, like a silver medalist, and you don't have these expectations and every relative calling you for money and, you know, all the other pressures that... Winning is not always cracked up to be either sometimes. I do think that there's something about sports that really confirms the uh, stasis theory, which is that it's not in absolute terms if you succeed or fail. It's sort of what you habituate yourself to and then what you get used to. And I think about some of the stories of, you know, I, I once did this story about Tommy Morrison, the uh, the boxer who had AIDS and wasn't allowed to box and he was in Rocky IV or something. And the whole point, it seems so tragic. He was at that point down in his luck and he had lost everything. But if he hadn't been at least the number one contender, if he hadn't been compared to other heavyweight boxers, heavyweight American boxers, maybe the best or second best in the world, it wouldn't take on that veneer of tragedy. You know, everything about Mike Tyson, I guess he's now a funny figure too, but for 10 years, there was that idea that it's tragic, but 
it's because of the fall. I mean, so many people never even get to the stature that Mike Tyson achieved at his heights. Yeah. And, you know, a particular culture that comes to mind is you're talking about this is gymnastics, a sport I love. And we have this piece by Carla Correa about Rosa Galieva, who's this Uzbek gymnast who was picked to lose. And the whole idea of team selection, when you think about how hard it is to make any Olympic team in gymnastics and the idea that so many federations, including the U.S., it's like the coach just picks you. Well, they just pick you to lose. I mean, I think it's an example of like a culture of gymnastics where people, the athletes are so entrenched in the sport, they just accept that, you know, you can work your butt off and it can be that subjective. And so I thought the dynamics of that were so interesting because now in gymnastics, that's a term like getting Galieva'd and she's known for this. And that's just, I mean, what a bizarre thing that in that sport is, I don't know if it's normalized quite, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but that it's just part of the field of play that your coach can just pluck you to lose. If you were Galieva and you got Galieva, which is you were picked to lose, they pretended she had an injury, she couldn't compete, would you rather have the term to get Galieva persist or would you rather not have that term at all? Similar question if you were Wally Pip. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there's certain athletes and maybe, you know, Kyrgios' example, this is like if you own it, right? Like there's something endearing about that, right? Like Scottie Pippen, for example, is one of my favorite players of all time because he's Scottie Pippen. You know, I mean, he's so talented, but he was always like the Robin to Jordan's Batman and also obviously a trailblazer later on. But like that there's something charming about that if the athlete kind of wears it the right way and has the right swagger. I don't know. But it's so precarious too. I mean, if the the reporting is right about, let's say, Pippen's reaction to the last dance, you know, he was comfortable with it as long as he felt like he had the right internal respect, you know? And yet, and when he's sort of like publicly criticized by Jordan, that was very painful for him by accounts. Every, everybody is just doing their best and it's very tenuous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe the lesson there is that when, is the gravitational pull of a raging narcissist is never a good way exactly. to <laughs> Correct. That's the subhead we should have used for the book. The name of the book is Losers, Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard. It is edited by my guests, Mary Pilon and Louisa Thomas. Thank you guys so much for doing this. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. I wanted to play two moments, similar moments, one from Joe Biden's town hall last night and the other from Donald Trump's on ABC a few days ago. Now, this wasn't the Wisconsin speech that I played at the top of the show. This was the ABC town hall where Trump fielded this question from a voter. And should pre-existing conditions which Obamacare brought into uh, brought to fruition be removed? No. Without, please stop and let me finish my question, sir. Should that be removed within a 36 to 72 hour period without my medication, I will be dead. Look, he thought she was asking a question. At that point, it did have the word should. How is he supposed to listen and understand? So there was that. And then there was this. Last night, Biden asked a question by a voter named Julie Masser Bally. And here she is. She's also a Republican who voted for President Trump in 2016. Julie, welcome. Thank you. How are you feeling now, Julie? Um, Good evening. Okay, charm offense deflected. But then Julie asked her question, and Biden interrupted. Listen to how that all played out. Policies during the Obama administration, such as the rules under the Waters of the U.S. Act, 
threaten to increase that regulation, as does policies proposed through the Green New Deal, which your climate plan em- embraces. No, it doesn't embrace uh, whole new... Excuse me, uh, okay. if I could finish. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, how do you plan to... Do you hear what Biden did there? Something I have never heard Trump do. He apologized. Sorry, and this is the crazy part, he seemed to actually mean it. It was a little grace note, meaning a note of graciousness. And in small things like this, there is a separation between the two candidates. Now, Trump's people, they like the petulance, but I think most people like the graciousness. But one area where the two candidates actually don't differ is that each thinks the other needs to get out there and do some more condemning. Last night, Joe Biden says this. He's president. I'm not the president. This is Donald Trump's America. You feel safer in Donald Trump's America when he incites these kinds of things? The idea is it's wrong no matter what the source is, where it comes from. I condemn it all and people should be held accountable. But folks, I'm waiting for the day when he says, I condemn all those white supremacists. I condemn those militia guys as much as I do every other organizational structure. Now, to be fair, and PolitiFact, check this, Donald Trump has condemned white nationalists. On August 15th, 2017, he said, I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. And in fact, those words were clipped on uh, to the exchange I just played you in a widely circulated video put forward by Benny Johnson, the BuzzFeed employee and plagiarist who is now the chief content creator of the pro-Trump group Turning Point USA. Of course, that clip, that condemnatory clip, is also within a minute of the actual press conference where Trump made this utterance. Very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Yes, his condemning of the neo-Nazis was just a swirl in that hodgepodge of the infamous good people on both sides pronouncement. But Trump has indeed said words against white nationalists. He literally has said, I condemn them. And what happened? Have they been contained? Have they been dissuaded? Are they locked up? Really, are they inconvenienced in the least bit by such a verbal condemnation? It seems not. And yet, condemning has become the hottest political requirement. Here was Dana Bash of CNN to Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. Was a Trump supporter. It's a tragedy. Do you, do you condemn that? It's a tragedy. Do you condemn it? It's a tragedy. It's a, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy, the, the but do you condemn it? The entire situation is a tragedy. You, you, don't, do you, allow peaceful, you don't allow peaceful pro- protests to turn siege into siege. Listen, I don't want to see anybody lose their life. I don't want to see the violence continue. I don't want to see businesses burn down. I don't want to see economic destruction. I condemn it all. Okay, thank you. Do you condemn it? Will you condemn it? Will you now condemn it? Yes, I understand what you're saying, but condemn. Do you condemn? I've heard Chuck Todd ask it. I've heard politicians demand it. I've heard local reporters put it to presidential candidates. Do you condemn Antifa? Yes, I do. Violence, no matter who it is. Joe Biden should be offered a commendation for all his condemnation. I condemned it across the board. The president still hasn't condemned the far right folks coming out and protesting and using violence. Still, Donald Trump says at every campaign stop that Biden and Kamala Harris 
who he always calls Kamala, won't condemn the violence. And the media asks, you know, there's a poll saying 20% of the people don't think you condemn it enough. Should you condemn it more? Do you need to come out and really condemn? What about defund the police? Do you condemn that? Yes, I know you have, but will you more than condemn it? Will you extra condemn it? What about your son's job in Ukraine? We don't want you to repudiate. We don't even care if you own it. We need some condemning. We need it locked up in opinion prison. What about the 1994 crime bill, which built all those prisons? How about condemning all the condemning? Here's one from the New York Times this week. It was about the state of play in Florida, where Biden's only up by four. Quote, Joe Biden has to come out and say, I condemn all these socialist revolutions that have caused pain to people. And I agree that Nicolas Maduro has to go. Former Representative Carlos Corbeo said of Biden. Biden, by the way, has come out. He, of course, has condemned Cuba and Maduro. I can't find the exact phrase structure, I condemn thee. But in a debate, he said, I confronted Maduro. And on a Zoom call, he was talking to supporters saying he couldn't believe that Trump was playing footsie with Maduro. Quote, he doesn't think that Maduro is that bad a guy. He's not really a dictator or something to that effect. Good Lord, said Biden. Mostly calls on a political opponent or an interviewee to condemn. They're just cynical. They're browbeating pointlessness. They make the questioner seem to be on some elevated plane than the person they're browbeating. But when you think about it, condemning, verbal condemning, not that meaningful. No one's actually going to hell. No one's actually going into confinement because of the phrasing of the disapproval. If the structure of the argument is so unsound, like a building in need of condemning, want to collapse under itself? It is a little bit in keeping with our trend of believing in magical words that by their utterance, wound or brand, Mike Pence will not say. He simply will not string together the words Black Lives Matter. Ron Johnson needs to be made to have the word condemn fall from his lips. And this, by the way, in the context of an ongoing criminal case in Wisconsin. It was about the 17-year-old who traveled to Kenosha and killed people. He needs to be condemned, not literally, but rhetorically. But I'm going to say also literally. We've gone so far into the realm of words as actions that I don't think there's any coming back. Words have been transmutated so as to take on substance, so as to inflict blows. Words are violence, and also silence is violence, and violence is to be condemned, which some feel will end violence. This is all a trend that I can, shall we say, do without. I dislike it, do not like it at all, nope. The question is, do I condemn it? Ah, sure, yeah, I guess, why not? But like all things condemned, there's always a way to sneak in an unlocked door. In other words, whether or not I condemn it, it's still going on as a blight that's ruining the neighborhood, but is impossible to completely tear down. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader, who claims he's the best thing ever to happen to his apartment's once-ignored oven. And Margaret Kelly, who makes a somewhat broader claim. I'm the best thing that ever happened to Puerto Rico. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She is wont to objurgate. The Gist. I'm here to observe that the losingest team in baseball history was the 1899 Cleveland Spiders 
Their record was 20 and 134. But you know what? That's 20 glorious days. 20 days of winning, feeling good about yourself, though. I actually looked it up, and in 13 of those 20 days that they won a game, they played a doubleheader and lost the other end of that doubleheader. So seven winning days out of seven months of play. Ooh, that's tough. Oomperoo, deperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.